Hello, and welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Today, you're going to hear from two ACS grantees. Dr. Avon Connor is at Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. Gabrielle Rock is at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. You'll hear proper introduction of them in just a moment. The first half of the conversation is a little more sciencey. They discuss their two recent publications. Dr. Rock had a really interesting paper on patient perspectives on chemotherapy de-escalation in breast cancer. She talked about her interviews with cancer patients and some of the barriers to de-escalating treatment that came up, fear of recurrence, you know, worry about regret. And she had some interesting uh, things to share about how the COVID-19 pandemic factored into all of this. Uh, and then Dr. Avon Connor spoke about her new publication in the journal Cancer, on comorbidities and the risk of cardiovascular disease mortality among racially diverse patients with breast cancer. The two of them had a very nice discussion about that paper. So the first half of the conversation today is a little more focused on a scientific audience. The second half is kind of more accessible to a general audience. And with that, um, let's hear from the two of them. All right, thanks for joining us. We've got two wonderful guests here today. So I wonder if y'all could quickly introduce yourself for everybody. Dr. Connor, can we start with you? Sure. My name is Dr. Avon Connor. I'm an assistant professor of epidemiology and oncology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. And I have a joint appointment at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. And I am a breast cancer epidemiologist focused on health disparities research. That's really cool. I actually didn't know you had the joint appointment at Sydney Kimmel. You know, our new CEO is uh, Dr. Karen. Yes. yes. So there are two Sydney Kimmels. So she's from the one in Philadelphia, I believe. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's well, a huge philanthropist, I assume, having two cancer centers. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> I don't have two cancer centers of my own, but I'm working on it. Uh, Dr. Dr. Rock, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Gabrielle Rock from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I am an associate professor of medicine in with joint appointments in hematology and oncology, as well as gerontology, geriatrics, and palliative care. And I'm a breast medical oncologist and health services researcher with an interest in quality and value in healthcare delivery. Right on. And battling laryngitis, just toughing it out, talk a little science with this. I appreciate you. Well, let, maybe we'll start with, with your recent paper. Each of you, we brought you together because you had these really nice publications. Dr. Rock, you, um, you published, I think it was in Cancer Medicine, mm -hmm. and it was on kind of patient perspectives on chemotherapy de-escalation in breast cancer. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about your, your work? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today about this. So We've seen over the recent years that breast cancer outcomes are really excellent for many patients with early stage breast cancer. And that there's now becoming with new treatments as well as new tools that tell us who has a good prognosis, an opportunity to think about scaling back on some of the treatments that we've historically given. And this is really in an effort to spare patients some of the both short-term and long-term toxicities that are associated with many of the treatments we give. And this is particularly important in the era of targeted medicines and some of the recent developments that we really go back and rethink, do we need all of the chemotherapy that we've historically given? So with that in mind, several of the cooperative groups have been 
really looking at this question and undertaking studies that are designed to test less intense approaches and see whether outcomes are potentially, you know, even improved in terms of quality of life while we are maintaining the survival outcomes. So I became interested in this a few years ago as part of some of my efforts working with our patient advocates and had, you know, an opportunity to work on this project, which I think it's important to note is a, is a project that I did in conjunction with our patient advocate community in which we wanted to understand better patient and patient advocate perspectives on this idea of giving less intense treatment for breast cancer to try to avoid some of this toxicity. So we conducted a mixed method study in which we interviewed patients and patient advocates about their perspectives and barriers and facilitators to participating in clinical trials testing less intense treatment. And we also really wanted to develop an understanding of what are some of the language that patients want or don't want for this type of trial. And then we concurrently conducted a survey through the patient Advocate Foundation that allowed us to capture more quantitatively some of the potential barriers and reasons why patients, in this case breast cancer survivors, might be interested in participating in a trial testing less. And so on a high level, what we found were some of the main barriers really related to fear and, you know, concerns that patients might have a recurrence and regret those decisions later or that they might be, you know, worried about did they not do everything possible to treat their breast cancer. And that's a really important thing to consider when we are talking about, you know, a disease where many people will be cured, but will be continuing to undergo screening and thinking about their breast cancer for many years to come. At the same time, we found that patients and patient advocates, you know, shared with us that their doctor's recommendation and their confidence in this approach was really important to them when making decisions. And they wanted these trials to be explained in a way that they could really understand the rationale or why we were doing this trial, how this might ultimately affect both them and sort of the breast cancer community at large. Another really important finding that we found from this project was that patients really disliked the term de-escalation. And so we've been working very hard within the oncology community to try to remove some of that language from the trials and the way we talk about these trials with patients. In our quantitative survey, zero patients out of our entire sample liked the term de-escalation. And we saw very similar things in terms of our qualitative interviews, patients really preferred other terms like, you know, optimizing or personalizing, terms that really helped convey not so much that we were scaling back, but that we were trying to identify the right amount of treatment for that individual patient based on their unique patient characteristics, on these new tests that were telling us whether or not they were likely to have a good outcome regardless of the therapy that we treated them with. So I think this provides a real foundation for how we talk to patients about, you know, participating in these very important trials that are going to help us get to the right amount of chemotherapy for patients in a way that is patient-centric and, you know, respects sort of their involvement in the process. So, and this work was funded by the Breast Cancer Research Foundation of Alabama and NCI through an ECOG grant. Okay, so that's fascinating. Um, but 
but maybe I should ask Dr. Connor, what what were your thoughts when you listened to to her description of that? So I was really intrigued about having the participants going through COVID respond. So how was that recruiting uh, participants to be a part of the study while COVID's happening? You're asking really good questions about treatment um, during the pandemic, having to go to a hospital setting while you're in the midst of having a cancer diagnosis. How are their responses? And um, would you want to expand on doing maybe a study on treatment effects maybe you know after the pandemic and how uh, patients are, um, I guess, more likely or less likely to have been, you know, adherent to uh, receiving treatment during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yeah, that's a great comment. So this was really an interesting experience. So we had started our interviews before the pandemic, and then we're in this unique position to be able to ask patients, how does that influence their decisions? And it was really impactful to me to see how patients changed their thought process when we started talking about the pandemic. So I had several, you know, individuals who I spoke with who initially were very resistant to the idea of anything less intense because they were very concerned about their risk of recurrence. But as we started talking about the pandemic, many of them would actually completely change, you know, the way they were approaching or thinking about this. And that really brought to mind, you know, what we see in terms of how patients are viewing healthcare somewhat differently than they were before. And I think some of those changes will be longstanding. And so patients are starting to consider what does it mean to be immunosuppressed or how important is it that I come into the clinic, you know, versus doing something at home? And are there opportunities for us in the future to provide services to patients where they're located rather than having them drive in? And while during the pandemic, that was really related to personal safety, I think some of those questions remain because they do address other issues like cost of transportation and just the time associated with coming to clinic. So, and that direct change during the pandemic, I think, was very interesting. And I think, again, provides some impetus for considering approaches of less intense treatment and allowing patients to, you know, live their lives with hopefully as few side effects and toxicities as possible. Was there one patient or one moment that made you become interested in, um, in well, what's the word that we're not supposed to use? De-escalation. <laughs> Was there, yeah, how did you get interested in it? And was there one, was there one thing? Yeah, so I originally became interested in this as part of an ECOG trial called the Compass for Two trial. And I had been asked initially to help them think about what are patient reported outcomes that would be important in a trial like this. And so talking with some of my, you know, patient advocate colleagues, especially I need to call out Mary Lou Smith, who's been an amazing partner in this journey, you know, thinking about what are the issues surrounding a trial of less. And so it is different in my mind than a trial where we are adding therapies. These psychological components, particularly anxiety and recurrence distress and decision regrets, 
really are going to play a different role in my mind in this type of a trial than they will in a traditional escalation trial. And so it was really sort of those initial dialogues, you know, with patients that made me become very interested in this and, you know, really extending then into how do we communicate with patients, which has long been an area of interest of mine and is actually, you know, the topic of my, you know, ACS supported mentored research scholar grant is around sort of communication about treatment decisions. I love these examples of how patients impact research, how they should when it's Mm -hmm. working right, right? Um, Should we switch gears? So Dr. Dr. Connor, you also had a new publication. Shout out to the journal Cancer and ACS Journal. Comorbidities and the risk of cardiovascular disease mortality among racially diverse patients with breast cancer. This was a really fun read. I wonder if you could um, maybe kind of give us a a quick overview. So just for some background, um, comorbidities are very prevalent among breast cancer patients. Um, About 30 to 40% of breast cancer patients have comorbidities around the time of their breast cancer diagnosis. Hypertension seems to be one of the most prevalent comorbidities that diagnosis, regardless of age, followed by CVD and also type 2 diabetes. And so we've seen in other like prospective epidemiological studies that having these comorbidities, comorbidities at the time of diagnosis does um, impact or increase risk of overall mortality and breast cancer mortality. Um, but just going through the literature, we found it hard to find uh, studies focused on other outcomes that breast cancer patients face, such as CVD mortality and the impact of these coexisting um, and also newly diagnosed comorbidities uh, that they would have on um, the impact of CVD mortality. So um, in partnership with the Missouri Cancer Registry and uh, with funding from the, um, the Women's Foundation of Greater Kansas City and with some ACS funding, uh, we did this research study in Missouri uh, focused on uh, comorbidities and uh, CVD mortality. And so Missouri is one of many states in the U.S. burdened by high rates of mortality from female breast breast cancer, as well as type 2 diabetes, CVD, and hypertension. And the prevalence of these comorbidities are even higher among the African-American population there in Missouri. And as we know, um, some of these comorbidities are also highly prevalent among African-American breast cancer patients and can impact overall mortality and and contribute to the disparities that we've seen in uh, mortality outcomes in breast cancer patients. So using data from the Missouri Cancer Registry, we linked with the Missouri Patient Abstract System, um, and we examined the relationships between both coexisting and newly diagnosed CVD, diabetes, and hypertension independently, and risk of CVD mortality in this racially diverse population of breast cancer patients. Uh, who all had invasive breast cancer diagnosed between 2002 and 2010. So we had uh, about 33,000 women in our study population um, with inpatient and outpatient hospital discharge records within two years of their breast cancer diagnosis. And about 10% of these women were African-American. And we calculated um, hazard ratios and um, to evaluate the hazards or risk of CVD-related mortality, and we accounted for competing risk of breast cancer deaths. And so for this preliminary results, we found that Black patients were two times more likely to have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, 1.4 times more likely to have a diagnosis of hypertension compared to white patients, and within the first two years after breast cancer, if you did not have a, a coexisting Di, uh, diagnosis of all three of those comorbidities, 
um, we did see that um, hypertension was diagnosed as a new comorbidity, about 9%, followed by CVD at 4% and type 2 diabetes at 2% prevalence. So black women were also two times more likely to have a new diagnosis of hypertension compared to white women, and two times more likely to have a new diagnosis of diabetes compared to white women. So if we look at the CVD mortality results, we saw that uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, newly diagnosed CVD and newly diagnosed hypertension within two years of that for initial breast cancer diagnosis did significantly increase risk of CVD mortality compared to women without any of those coexisting or without any of those uh, comorbidities. And deaths due to CVD were also significantly increased by similar magnitudes in women with CVD, di diabetes, and hypertension at the same time as their diagnosis. So there weren't statistically different um, uh, effects between coexisting and newly diagnosed. And in stratified analysis by race, surprisingly, we did not see significant differences by race. Um, we did see uh, CVD risk was highest among black women who developed CVD within two years of their diagnosis and or had CVD at their time of their breast cancer diagnosis. Um, and again, these results were not statistically different between um, by white women and um, black women. And we also stratified associations by, um, by treatment. So interestingly, um, uh, Dr. Rock talked a lot about uh, influences of um, cardiotoxicity probably, yes, uh, you know, toxicities due to treatment, um, specifically with chemotherapy. And so we saw um, that looking at these results by treatment, including chemotherapy, hormone therapy, and radiation, we saw the greatest increase in CVD mortality um, among women who received uh, chemotherapy and also who developed CVD within those two years after their breast cancer diagnosis. And we also saw a significant uh, result among women who had coexisting hypertension and who also received uh, chemotherapy. The, the magnitude of those associations were pretty high as well. So overall, we saw um, significant findings also with all-cause mortality that were somewhat attenuated compared to CVD mortality. And um, overall, just in general, our study examined the impact of both coexisting and newly diagnosed diseases in a diverse population of these breast cancer patients. And while more than 10% of our study population had a new diagnosis of hypertension, 2 to 4% had a new diagnosis of CVD or diabetes. And these women had higher risk of overall and CVD mortality compared to women with these conditions. And the highest risk of CVD mortality was observed among subgroups of women who received chemotherapy after surgery. So although we did not find significant differences by race, black women in our study did have significantly higher prevalence of these comorbidities, as I mentioned, and were more likely to have chemotherapy. Black women also had higher risk of death due to breast cancer compared to white women over the same follow-up period. And so several studies have examined CVD mortality as a competing cause of death among breast cancer patients. However, we didn't find any studies to date that have evaluated the different effects of these coexisting and newly diagnosed comorbidities on risk of CVD death while accounting for breast cancer as a competing uh, cause of death. And so we believe a major strength of our study was it was population-based. We included women from across uh, the state of Missouri within a 10-year period, and we were able to report these associations among uh, a diverse population, included Black women who are historically understudied. And another strength is that we utilized the cancer registry and the biostatistics data and hospital discharge data to determine the timing of the comorbidities in relation to breast cancer diagnosis. And these were all abstracted from medical records using ICD codes. 
and limitations of our study that we've acknowledged are we didn't have the behavioral risk factor data for those shared risk factors that could impact breast cancer and CVD mortality outcomes, which include obesity, um, different body size measures, dietary factors, physical activity. Uh, we also didn't have specific types of chemotherapy that we could account for or doses of radiation. Um, so in conclusion, we found that these existing comorbidities and the development, development of new comorbidities within two years of your breast cancer diagnosis can significantly impact risk of CBD mortality. And we think that by monitoring patients more closely from the type, time of diagnosis and maybe doing some targeted interventions could possibly improve survival outcomes. Wow. So, so, so glad we've got Dr. Rock on here because you see breast cancer patients. Um, through that lens, what, what what do you think? Yeah, so I mean, this is beautiful work, and you know, I really enjoyed reading your paper. So I think I was really struck by the high rates of these comorbidities, and thinking about you know how are we addressing those, or potentially not addressing those in clinic, you know, because I think many oncologists really are very focused on the breast cancer specifically and may miss, you know, the hypertension and the other cardiovascular, you know, issues that are coming up for these patients. So, you know, I think this is an opportunity for us to think more broadly about the care of cancer patients and, you know, how are we engaging, you know, primary care and other providers. And I, I, I'd be curious to see, you know, what do you think, Dr. Connor, is sort of the, the best approach for us to move forward and take the data that you've shown and think about, you know, where do we go from here in terms of interventions? That's a great question, and I'm actually working on some proposals to try to address that. Um, so I, I'm totally into primary care engagement and how uh, primary care physicians can take a more active role in cancer survivorship. Um, so in the perspective of, you know, you have a comorbidity that's diagnosed um, either shortly after your breast cancer, even it's prevalent during breast cancer, if the treatment is appropriate um, for your comorbidities? Are you well controlled? How would those um, uh, how would those things affect your um, your your actual breast cancer treatment schedules or, or the toxicity levels that you might have um, due to your comorbidities? Uh, you know, historically, women with diabetes might be quote unquote undertreated because they are uh, have more um, toxicity due to uh, having diabetes or being on certain treatments or for their diabetes. So I'm curious to see how primary care can be more engaged in um, survivorship care plans um, for just the health benefits of um, disease management. Um, how are women feeling um, about self-efficacy of, of their disease management um, and uh, following treatment plans? Um, you know, you, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. You have these other comorbidities. Well, the breast cancer, you know, would that be more important now in your life thinking like, oh, these other diseases, like, oh, I can worry about those, you know, at another time, I want to make sure my breast cancer is treated. And so maybe these other ailments fall to, you know, the, the waste, the, the sidelines, um, because you're more interested in having a treatment for your breast cancer. So I think um, having another doctor involved in, in the um, survivorship plan is, is an important factor. And if it's your primary care physician, um, a family doctor, or um, I know there's this emerging field of cardio or oncology as well. Um, I think, you know, having 
uh, that support is very important for patients who are struggling, especially if they have more than one comorbidity. It might be multimorbidities um, and managing those all together with the diagnosis of breast cancer. I was just talking to a scientist the other day. She does like a rehabilitation, cancer rehabilitation and prehabilitation, actually. She said something that was so interesting. One of the patients was not into exercise at all. And her reaction was like, you're telling me I've got cancer and I've got to start exercising? <laughs> like, uh, and, and hearing you talk about that just now, is, I wonder if y'all have run into that or, you know, studies of people with multiple comorbidities or you seeing patients, Dr. Rock. What do you do if you've got this patient who needs to start exercising or maybe stop eating the way they eat? But at the same time, it's like, you know, you have a certain lifestyle that makes you comfortable, that may help you get through treatment, right? And all the difficulties that come with, yeah. Do y'all have thoughts about that or am I just, um, or is that a silly question? So I think it is a great question. And I think there's a little bit of a balance and you have to know and talk to your patients and get a sense as to where there's where they're at at that moment. So there are some people who are, you know, incredibly overwhelmed and this may not be the best time to talk to them about, you know, a diet or exercise plan. I would say that's probably, though, the minority. I mean, if you get past the first or second appointment, mm -hmm. you know, my experience, you know, getting a cancer diagnosis is devastating, but it's also a time in which people are willing to reflect on their lives and how they can take care of their health. And I think it behooves us as providers to use that opportunity to really help you know, people nurture them in the direction of health. And so when I talk to my patients, I talk to them often about the things that you can do in addition to chemotherapy and hormone therapy to become healthy include maintaining a healthy weight and really getting out there and exercising. And even if it's just a 20 to 30 minute walk every day, you know, that mobility and strength actually will help you better be able to tolerate your treatments and get to the other side of this diagnosis. And so I think there is an opportunity which is sometimes missed by providers, but I think, you know, in terms of what we're seeing from Dr. Connor's work, I think we do need to be focusing on these healthy lifestyle habits at the same time as their cancer diagnosis. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think if it comes from the idea of like, this is kind of your prescribed treatment also, in addition to you having these treatments to prevent a recurrence, to um, reduce your risk of breast cancer death, you're also doing these healthy lifestyle changes to just in general for better health and also to prevent a recurrence and to mm -hmm. prevent mortality and to live a longer life. So I think if it's almost marketed in a way as, you know, here's your treatment plan and here's some, here are some additional things we'd like for you to do in a, you know, addition to your treatment. And I think that if it comes at, you know, with that perspective of, you know, this will help you get through treatment as well. It might, you know, lessen some side effects, um, just being healthier. It, I think it, it can become an important part of that discussion between um, the patient and provider. So like, I think I'm busy. I know you guys are orders of magnitude more busy than me, but it's probably the same is true for you, right? Like there's things that you love to do and try to, uh, about your work that you're trying to get to. And then there's, of course, always competing demands every day, every week, all the time. 
but there's still that thing that you're like really excited about that you are hoping to make time for and when you you know what is that thing for you when you're like what what aspect of your research or your work are you really excited about these days that um could be something you are in the middle of it could be something you're trying to get to I can speak for today. I have a new postdoc and she has just been um, inspiring me to um, write more, put in more grants. Um, She has all these cool ideas. And I think that um, she really has, um, I guess her motivation is to make a difference in in breast cancer survivors. And it's, it's helped me to stay more focused on um, making a difference as well in terms of being uh, productive and research and really trying to consider innovative ways to recruit people. Um, we're using social media now to do some pilot projects, getting innovative during COVID um, and doing more qualitative type work that I'm not, not used to. I'm, I'm more of a quantitative scientist. So I think getting more at the um, patient perspective and the participant's perspective is exciting for me because I'm just used to like kind of like bigger data and numbers from a cancer registry or numbers from uh, medical records and not having that, you know, respondent type data um, and really understanding um, what patients are going through and their side effects. And um, so we have some really cool projects that we're working on and hopefully we'll get published soon. And I think that um, that's been exciting for me, having a new person to work with who brings different perspectives, um, who's more qualitative in, in her research. What's her name? Her name is, is Kate Dibble. So I'll give her a shout out. Dr. Dibble. She's Doing funded work. by our T32 with the NCI. That's great. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, Dr. Rock? So what I'm the most passionate about is really how do we provide the best supportive care services to patients? And that crosses many different domains in terms of symptom monitoring and communication and really how do we just provide the best possible care? And I think the place where I am the most passionate is really innovatively considering how do we integrate research and clinical care. So you know, I would love to see, you know, a space where we are truly learning from all of the patients that we touch in order to be able to provide better care for them and in particular sort of better supportive care services. So I spent a lot of my time thinking about sort of dissemination implementation science and how do we translate what we learn from research into care delivery and practice to, you know, going back to this general concept of really making a difference in the lives of patients. Also a really good answer. Do you have time for one more question? Well, I was hoping to ask you if you could talk a bit about how American Cancer Society funding has advanced your research. I can go first. So I have been incredibly fortunate to receive an American Cancer Society Mentored Research Scholar Grant, which impacted my research in in so many ways. You don't have enough time to tell me for me to tell you, but I will just focusing on a few things. I think it's such a career catalyst for a junior investigator to get one of these awards. And it really paves the way for future research and allows allowed me to have the time to pursue this passion of research in a supportive environment where I have a wonderful mentor, Dr. Smith Avatia, and 
you know, allows me to do this innovative research at the same time as to grow as an investigator um, and ultimately move on to be independent and be an R01 funded investigator. And there's no way that would happen without the support from the American Cancer Society in this journey. I have to say ditto to everything Dr. Rock said. Um, I also have a mentored research scholar grant. Um, I was just awarded last year, so I have well, two years left of funding. Um, and it has been an awesome experience to actually get to do uh, data that's local. Um, so I focused on Maryland for most of my research grant and working with the Maryland Cancer Registry. And also I'll get to do more of this um, uh, primary data collection that is also, again, new to me to, to work on some qualitative methods that I'll be learning more through um, the uh, career development section of, of the grant. So it's allowing me that protected time to work on um, the research, to prepare competitive uh, grant proposals for, say, an R01, R21 proposals through NIH. And um, also just um, having the experience now, too, as a reviewer for ACS. It, it's been an awesome experience to, to be on the other side and to meet with other faculty and, and scientists over the, you know, throughout the country. Um, to get their perspectives on innovative science and where we're going next with cancer research here in the U.S. And I also want to add, you know, the ACS has created a wonderful community for us. So being able to connect with other ACS investigators and Theory Lab and having those opportunities, I think, also helps you know, a cadre of investigators you know, move forward and collaborate and have great science. That's great to hear. And uh, this has just been really fun for me to listen to y'all talk about your new work and to hear about what excites you. So I'm, I'm grateful to y'all for everything you do for, you know, advancing cancer research and helping patients. And, uh, and thanks for being so- I also just out my mentor, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, it's Dr. Kala Vistanathan. I meant to drop, name drop her as well. <laughs> Gotta do it. Yes. Right on. Wish I had a mentor. <laughs> Got a beagle. He keeps me in line. <laughs> Well, thank you both for your time. And uh, listen, y'all take care. Enjoy your summer, okay? Thank, thank you. you.